The reading this evening is from the book of Revelation, chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. If you want to follow it in the Church Bible, it's on page 1,236. Revelation 4, 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, round the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father God, once again as we contemplate your word, 
we ask you to open our ears so that we may hear and our hearts so that we may receive anything that you may have for us this evening. How do you define the indefinable? And how do you express the inexpressible? Um, every time I open the book of Revelation, I think of a little girl sitting with her crayons, working on a big sheet of paper. Her grandma comes by and says, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm making a picture of God. And grandma says, but darling, no one knows what God looks like. The little girl says, they will when they see this picture. This is what John is setting out to do in the book of Revelation. He's trying to give us a picture of the indescribable. He's trying to tell us what God is like. And the Apostle John sets out to write to about all these wonderful things, these images, these beasts, and everything else. And we're not going to concentrate this evening on the, the, the richness of the imagery, because we're going to think, first and foremost, about who um, he was writing to and why. And then we're going to think about what he is actually telling us about God. We, um, at the start of the book of Revelation, we meet the Apostle John, now an old man, um, living in uh, isolation, in exile on the Greek island of Patmos. And there he has an encounter with the living, risen Jesus, uh, glorified Jesus, who gives him a message for the seven churches in Asia, in Asia Minor. These churches were under Roman occupation um, at a time when the Roman Empire was trying to enforce emperor worship on all the inhabitants of the empire. And those who refused to bow down to Caesar as God could uh, be uh, subjected to all kinds of punishments and uh, penalties. And um, so these people were in danger of losing jobs, of losing income, of losing their homes, and worse. In fact, they shared many of the concerns that many of us share today. And the way that John, and what these people needed more than anything else, like many of us need today, is some certainty in uncertain times. And John goes about trying to bring them that certainty by telling them about a wonderful God, about who God is. Um, and the key verse is in, in Revelation 1 8, where he says, We have a God who was and who is and who will be, who is the same always and forever, who is, who is, who, who, he's the one that, that sees the end from the beginning. He's the one who uh, again and again has proved himself faithful to God's people uh, throughout the ages. And so why should you not expect him to be faithful to you now? And many of us here today can testify to God having been faithful to us in the past, maybe getting us out of some very difficult, through some very difficult times and situations. And I think God says to us, well, if, you, if I got you through things in the past, why shouldn't I get you 
through, why don't you trust me to do the same for you in the present and in all the future challenges that you will face in your life. But you know, it's easier to put your trust in a God when you know more about who he is. And the book of Revelation, among other things, tells us about the character of God. It reveals God as holy and as worthy and as just and as glorious. And over the coming weeks in the, of the service, we will be exploring some of these characteristics, these dimensions of God's character. But tonight, we will focus on God as holy. But although our focus is on the holiness of God, uh, running throughout the whole of Revelation, arguably through the whole of Bible, is that we cannot separate God's holiness from God's justice and God's love. The Bible is riddled, is tells us throughout about the splendor of God's holiness, about the reality of God's justice, and about the wonder of his love. And these three are intertwined. They're, they're together. That's why we say it's a cord of three strands. And that's because God wouldn't be holy if he wasn't just. And none of us would escape his justice if we didn't have access to his love personified in Jesus. And tonight, I want to focus on uh, holiness through four questions. The first is, what does holy really mean? And the second is, you know, what makes a person or a thing holy? And the third is, why should we treat God's name as holy? Why is that so special? Why is that such a big deal? And finally, how does all of this make any difference to us as we confront situations, the pain that we're going through, and the sufferings that many of us have to endure at this time? Now, holy is a word that is used all the time. We use it today in our worship, and some of the, my favorite hymns were, uh, songs were played today. We sing, Holy, Holy, Lord God Almighty. We sing, Holy One. We sing, Holy is the name of the Lord on high. We think, we, we pray that wonderful song, which I was somehow associated with Nigel, about 10,000 reasons for giving thanks to God, with that refrain that says, um, you know, you're, uh, we worship your holy name, because it's repeated over and over again. And, but what is it that actually holy actually means? What, what do we mean when we say holy? Well, there are two meanings in the Bible. The first is, it's a synonym for personal righteousness and goodness and purity. Um, and, but that's not the main use. The main use in the scriptures is a word that is, is translated from the Hebrew word kadish, which means separate, totally other, totally away, separated and reserved from all other things. It's set apart. And when John in Revelation writes about God as being holy, he writes about one who transcends, who transcends everything and is higher than anything and is outside anything. In fact, he's outside creation. The creator 
is not inside. He's outside creation. He created it all. Think of the universe, and yet he is out there, greater and outside it. Unbelievable. But throughout the Bible, the word holy is used as an adjective. So we get uh, the holy of holies, and we get holy ground, and we get the holy temple, and all sorts of other holies uh, that occur in Scripture. And in what sense are they set apart? Um, you know, everybody has things they set apart. You and I have special places where perhaps uh, where the place where you were born or a place you escape to and you need to get away from it all. And you have special, we have special objects, things that we treasure, that even they may be very ordinary to everybody else, but we've set them apart because they, they belong to someone that we loved or that we inherited them or they, they, they remind us of a particular occasion. And we have special dates. There are special times that are holy, well, venerated by us. Uh, so notably, our birthdays. I mean, our birthday, although it's just another day for everybody else, is a most special day. It's a day set apart uh, by us. Every culture, every nation, every civilization, according to anthropologists, has things that they consider separate, venerable, set apart from everything else. But none of this is holy in the sense that we are talking about this evening. Because holiness, in the sense of the Bible, is anything that has been touched by God. When the touch of God, a holy God, touches the ordinary and it becomes extraordinary. He touches an ordinary person and that person becomes set apart, extraordinary. He touches your life and you will be a different person. It will lead you to, to, to giving your life to the Lord, to being, committing yourself to Christ, to being born again, to being reborn, to becoming a totally different person. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just means that you've been set apart in that sense, that biblical sense. You've been set apart to be God's person. You and I have been chosen to serve him and to be different from other people in that sense. We will still be sinners. We're still in need of his forgiveness, but we are set apart, and thereby, because he is holy, we are made holy. If you think of Abraham and you think of Moses uh, putting up piles of stones together and building an altar in the desert, in, in, on the, wherever they were, uh, and they did that not because this bit of ground was more special than the next bit of ground, but because God touched that piece of ground. God, that's, that's where they met the Lord. That's where they encountered him. And the, when the, as I said, when the one who, who is totally other uh, touches something that is ordinary, it becomes other as well. It becomes special. It becomes extraordinary. Now, not everyone has a great longing to be touched by God's holiness, uh, because holiness has the capacity both to attract us and to draw us and to repel us because it's rather scary and frightening. And uh, we see this in many places in Scripture. The, the Scripture has several stories of people hiding from God, running away from God. Think of um, Adam and Eve uh, hiding in the Garden of Eden before they were expelled from it, hiding from God. Think of Jonah. Uh, running away from God like crazy um, before he was swallowed by the big fish or the whale or whatever you think that thing is. Uh, you know, and th there are lots of examples of people just not wanting 
to get too close to what is holy. And this is shown in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus' ministry is full of uh, co- of contrasts of people on one hand who were drawn to his holiness, drawn to him, and others who ran away and didn't want to know. Um, those who, who knew their need. The difference was those who knew their need for God, knew for, for God's holiness, for God's presence, uh, were drawn to him. And so the, the, those that had a need, that knew their need, acknowledged their need, the, 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 the sick, the prostitutes, the, the tax collectors that were so hated, uh, soldiers, all kinds of people that suddenly f- who felt the need for him couldn't get enough of his holiness. By comparison, uh, the uh, complacent, the self-righteous, the, the um, sanctimonious, the protectors of the old system, the old laws, the Mosaic law, um, they despised Jesus uh, because he had come to try to lift the burden. He was lifting the burdens of the old laws and the old restrictions of people's backs, and they uh, couldn't stand it. And, and not least, the, the, he, he, he violated the Jewish dietary regulations. See, Jesus declared all food okay, fine, uh, and said, said to them, just to add insult to injury, that what makes a person impure is not what goes into their mouth, but what comes out of this, out of their mouths. And that neatly leads me into the holiness of God's name, what comes out of our mouths. Well, Treating God's name, and that's what we're talking about now, speaking the name of God. Why is the name of God so special? Well, treating the name of God as special is right at the heart of our faith. Uh, We all know that the Lord's Prayer that we've just prayed today is in three parts. There's an opening address, and then then there's petition, and then there's a closing declaration. Um, and what do you think is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Picture the scene. Uh, the disciples saw that Jesus' power was somehow intimately tied up with the way that he prayed. And so they say to Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he says, okay. Um, you say, first of all, our Father who is in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Now, let's stop there. Now, do you think that hallowed be your name is part of the opening, declar- uh, opening address, or is it the first petition? Have you thought about that ever? I have. You know, I, th- I reckon that if Jesus had meant it to be part of the opening address, of the address, He would have said, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed is your name. But what he says is, hallowed be thy name. And what Jesus means here, I'm sure that what he's saying is, guys, you know, the first thing I want you to pray for, fellas, is that you pray that the name of our Father be as holy on earth as it is in heaven. Um, The Bible tells us over and over again that the name of God must be kept holy. 
Now, why, and this is why is it so important that we keep God's name sacred, that keep him holy? I'd like to use an example. Most of us would agree that, um, many of us would agree that the country's in a mess. But help is on the way. We have a new prime minister coming tomorrow. And he or she may, she or he, I think which way, which way around do you think is right? She or, he, she or he, in their first day in office, may decide that all the laws of the land, the whole legal system is absolute rubbish. It hasn't changed the world, hasn't changed the society. We should scrap it all. And we should start over. And she contacts the Secretary General of the United Nations, and the United Nations agrees, yes, we, let's start again, let's write a new set of laws, and let's give the job of writing those laws to the evening service of St. John's Church. <laughs> They're holy people, and they, they'll do the right thing. They'll write some good laws. And supposing that you now and I had to sit down and compose a new set of laws by which all the, the, the observance of which, the obedience to which, all the nations of the world would be judged by. So everybody has to obey our laws. And so, but in order to keep things simple, because there are lots of people around and need to be there, we must keep it down to 10. We're limited to 10, okay? So would you use up one of our ten, we're, we're discussing this now as if we're writing these laws, would you use one of our ten by having a law against coveting? One of the ten. Would you perhaps devote another law to ruling that children should honor their parents? Maybe, maybe not. And Maybe you'd give up a couple of your uh, ten uh, to have laws against murder, murdering people, and stealing. That makes sense. And you might even toy with the idea of having a law that says is against adultery. That may or may not be a good idea, but, you know, some of us might think that that's a good, good use of one of our ten. But how many of us, how many of us here today entrusted with that task would waste one of our ten on a law that makes it an absolute requirement that no one should ever, ever take the name of God in vain. Yet, you know, when God wrote a constitution for a national government, that's, he made that one of his ten. A while ago, a Time magazine um, reported how in the American state of Maryland, a truck driver was arrested for being drunk and disorderly. When the police came to arrest him, he was so blasphemous, so uh, aggressive in his speech, so unbelievably obnoxious, that by the time the police got him before a magistrate, they hated this guy. He had just insulted and offended them so much. And the magistrate didn't like him any better because the magistrate was angered because all through the proceedings, the guy kept interrupting and effing and blinding and, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and cursing everybody in the, in the courtroom. And the magistrate imp 
looked at what the highest penalty was that he could in, in, impose on this guy, and it was $100 and 30 days for being in jail, for being drunk and disorderly. But the, he wanted, desperately wanted to teach this guy a lesson. So the magistrate found an ancient law, a disused but still operative law, um, in the Maryland Code, whatever it was, that, uh, uh, which said that uh, blasphemy, anybody blaspheming in public, could also uh, be uh, charged $100 and uh, spend another 30 days in jail. So he imposed both sentences on this guy. And the guy ended up 60 days in jail and $200 fine. Now, the interesting story, the interesting thing about this story is that the, the editor of Time was, magazine was absolutely incandescent that in this day and age, such a cruel and unjust punishment could be imposed on someone merely, merely for blaspheming the name of God. What's become of our society? Have you ever wondered why the name of our holy God and our blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is the only name that's used when people blaspheme? Have you, has it ever occurred to you that no one ever blasphemes using the name of Krishna or Buddha or Muhammad, Allah? doesn't happen, does it? And I've thought about it deeply, and it's, I can't share my thinking with you tonight. That's a different talk. I'll share it with you some other time. But it is worth thinking about. While, while among us every day, and this really hurts me, every day all around us, we hear the word, the name of God, blasphemed left, right, and center. And it's used not only to, as a curse, but also uh, to express delight or surprise or anything like that. Has it ever occurred to you that we live in an OMG culture? OMG is typed, texted, tweeted, emailed millions of times, and spoken millions of times every day in our society. And, you know, I'm a great fan of these transformation programs where somebody's rotten old house or garden or car is transformed into something truly beautiful. I enjoy watching those programs greatly. But in, invariably, the response of the beneficiary of this great transformation says, OMG. And Jesus, in teaching his disciples, says, you are to pray that my Father's name be hallowed. You know, that my kingdom... That, you know, I'm convinced. I'm one of those, maybe you're convinced too. I'm convinced that the kingdom of God will not come on earth until the name of God is revered on earth as it is in heaven. How can we, how can you and I, how can anybody... Um, honor and respect someone and love them and abuse their name. We wouldn't do it to another human being. Why do we need to do it to God? You know, the Jews have such, even today, observant Jews have such a reverence for the name of God that they will not say it or write it. 
they use Adonai, the Lord, instead, because it's just too holy to speak. Some years ago, I found myself in a, in a men's prayer group um, with a man who, uh, as part of his testimony, used to say, um, used to testify how he had blasphemed and sworn, uh, and then he was, in a routine sort of way, unconsciously, didn't even know what he was saying, just, just routinely blasphemed. And he said, no one in church ever told me to stop. But one day, Jesus touched his life, and he had a vision of the glory of God, the holiness of God, and how much God loved him, and how much God wanted him to be like God, to have... And he said, from that day, you know, from that day on, I never, ever abused the name of God again. The Bible repeatedly tells us, and, and Eddie quoted it today, Isaiah and elsewhere, God saying to us, to you and me, to all his people, be holy as I am holy. And Jesus says to you and me today, says to each of us, I have set you apart, I've touched your lives, I've set you apart for my service, I'm sending you out into a dying world, and where I want you to model my holiness, not only in the way that you behave, but in the way that you speak, and I want you to be truly that, that I want you to proclaim my gospel in deeds and in words and just in the way that you are. I have set you apart to bring that my certainty into an uncertain world. And as you are holy and as you take holiness seriously, you will see a difference. You say, well, what difference does it make? Well, you will see what a difference holiness makes to your own life in whatever situation you're in and to the lives of all those that you come in contact with. Amen.